and welcome to another episode of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. This is Jenny, and I am here to guide you through episode 3, which is entitled, Not More Mummies. You'll find out why in a little bit. Uh, spoiler, she's going to talk about mummies again. <laughs> anyway, I think we should get right down to it. I've got a lot of stuff to cover today, and I do not want to keep you guys here for another 40 minutes, because that was a long time. So let's get down to business. So I know that I promised you guys a scoop about Richard III on the last episode. And here's where we are on that. So uh, actually this requires a bit of background knowledge. Uh, let's see, I, me, myself, uh, I do have a degree from the University of Leicester, England, which is the school that made the discovery of Richard III's uh, remains. So, uh, let me say, I didn't actually go to school in England, although I have been there. It is a lovely country. But the uh, University of Leicester has an amazing distance program in archaeology and ancient history, one that I partook in when I was, let's say, stuck in the middle of Mississippi in a very small town that did not have any type of archaeology or anthropology program nearby. And so I was kind of, you know wanting to go back to school and I didn't have a lot of options so uh, the distance program I discovered was actually one of the best ones in the world. University of Leicester is a very accredited school um, it's got lots of great stuff going on in archaeology so I thought what the heck I'm gonna do it. <laughs> so I did and it was, uh, it was a really great experience. I enjoyed it. If anyone there is thinking about doing a distance program maybe you don't have a school near you don't have the means. Um, I think the distance program at Leicester is a good option. It actually was sufficient after I got my degree to get me accepted at a fine American institution for my master's degree, of which I am almost done. Thank you. So yeah, it worked for me. Maybe it could work for you. Who knows? So anyway, what does this have to do with anything? The University of Leicester, who made the discovery, is my alma mater, I guess you could say, and I'm still in contact with some of my old professors there, so I reached out to them. I got in touch with Dr. Ruth Young, who was one of my teachers. Uh, she's a lovely lady. I met her last year at SAA, representing Leicester, and we had a lovely conversation. So she was nice enough to write me back. And I just wanted to know how things were going there now that they've got all of this, you know, buzz surrounding the discovery and a lot of exciting things happening. So uh, Dr. Young said that Richard III obviously has been an amazing achievement and the whole city as well as the university is very pleased. And I thank her for writing back. It's very nice of her. She also told me that she had gotten in touch with some of her colleagues who had actually worked on the Richard III project on the discovery of the Greyfriars Church, Richard III's body, and the study of his skeleton. And I didn't ask her to do that, but she was nice enough to give them, uh, give them a message from me. And I'm waiting for them to get back, and maybe we'll have a little bit of a chat sometime. Um, I obviously understand they are totally busy and important people, so I am not in any rush. And whenever I get that, uh, I will definitely get back to you guys with a follow-up. Possibly with some of the original uh, project staff on the Richard III discovery. But anyway, that uh, that's what I had going on with my Richard III scoop. 
Scooperoo. <laughs> so now that you know that, I think it's time to get on to the story. Let's talk a little bit about Richard III. The man, the myth, the legend. Richard III. His skeleton was discovered in Leicester, England. Uh, and it's obviously one of the biggest stories of the year, so duh, I'm talking about it. The uh, identification of the skeleton has basically been confirmed through radiocarbon dating, DNA testing, and skeletal and historical uh, analysis. Excavations of a site found under a parking lot, of course, another parking lot. Everything is always found under parking lots, people. We should just tear them up because you know there's some good stuff down there. <laughs> Alright, so anyway, under the parking lot. Parking lot? In Leicester, England, uh, was revealed the remains of the former Greyfriars Friary, and inside that friary was a small grave holding the body of the former King of England and a Shakespearean villain. So let's talk about the man himself. Uh, I've got a bunch of historical crap kind of mixed in here with the archaeology stuff, so just bear with me, you know, maybe you want to get your notebooks out, take some notes, alright? I did a lot of research for this project, I don't want it to go to waste. So here we go, Richard III. Let's see, how did he end up in a church uh, under a parking lot in Leicester, England? Uh, historically, we have always believed the king's death happened at the Battle of Bosworth Field on the 22nd of August in the year 1485 which was actually only two years after taking the crown. But it does make him the last English king to die in battle. Historical accounts state that he was killed brutally, publicly displayed, and then buried by the Franciscans of Leicester in their friary, which is one of my new favorite words. Friary. Friary. Mm, makes me think of fried food. So, let's see, friary. The same said friary was supposedly destroyed later by uh, King Henry VIII, I-M-I-M, -I and uh, at that point apparently knowledge of Richard's burial place was lost. Hmm. In 2012, of course, the University of Leicester, which boasts one of the best archaeology programs in the country, and uh, they were actually in a collaborative project with the Richard III Society, who've been fighting the good fight to clear Richard's name. So they joined teams with the University of Leicester and the Leicester City Council to launch a aggressive archaeological project aimed at discovering the friary and the remains of the man himself, which of course were waiting to be discovered somewhere in their own backyard. It's only six months later when they announced that they had indeed discovered the king's body under one of their own city council parking lots, or if you're British, Kapog. Oh, that was a terrible British accent. I think I actually sounded more like Scarlett O'Hara. Sorry! <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the staff working on the project. Uh, the Leicester staff included Richard Buckley, who was the project manager, Matthew Morris, the fieldwork director, and then the osteological examination was done by Joe Appleby, the DNA and genetics were done by Turi King, and then professors Lynn Foxhall and Kevin Schurer collaborated with history and genealogical expertise. So first and foremost, they have a skeleton. And apparently this skeleton is pretty darn beat up. Now, due to the historical evidence surrounding Richard III's death and burial, the signs at this point began to indicate that the skeleton might actually be Richard. But more testing obviously had to be done to verify this theory. They began with an osteological examination done by bioarchaeologist Joe Appleby. 
she identified several variables which coincide with the historical reports of Richard III's death and physical characteristics. His violent end during battle is consistent with the many signs of trauma found over the body and especially the skull. Several blows and a puncture wound to his skull were identified, including a massive hole to the posterior of the foramen magnum by some large cleaving instrument like a halberd. And seriously, this thing is huge. I'm going to put a picture on my website for you guys to see. Take a look, because it's nasty. Basically, uh, if he had an occipital bun before the battle, he sure didn't afterwards, because it was literally just cut off. This injury alone would most likely have been, like, literally just instantly dead. But Appley believe <laughs> sorry, Appley, Appleby believes that just to be sure he was dead, the victors of the battle took a dagger to his face, mm, lovely, and cut down to the bone across his cheek and jawline, which is indicated by two long cut marks on the face, on the facial palate bones. And so obviously his corpse would have been pretty disfigured after that. And I guess the thinking behind this was in case someone showed up six months later claiming to be the king and trying to take the throne, um, if they didn't have these type of marks, then they'd obviously be an imposter. These guys were so smart. And if poor old Richie isn't having a bad enough day already, apparently there are other cut marks evident on his hip bone and rib, which indicate that either he lost his armor in battle and was injured at that point, or that these injuries were inflicted on him shortly after his death when he was stripped naked for display in the town square. <laughs> Sounds like a really bad day. And I think the thinking is also, with all of the injuries on his skull, that uh, it, he most likely lost his helmet in battle. And that's what gave the bad guys the opportunity to take him down, you know, and chop part of his brain out. So, let's see. Uh, that's about all we have for the, uh, for the injuries to the skeleton. But the other compelling evidence comes from the vertebrae, uh, which in the middle of the spine in this specimen appears to have had a severe curvature, usually called scoliosis, that affected at least 11 vertebrae. And for those of you who don't know, that is a lot of vertebrae. <laughs> and I guess that it's the kind of scoliosis that probably developed in adolescence, but would have had a really marked effect on the individual stance, the way they carried themselves and were able to stand up straight. And this bit of information is probably the most important. Because Richard III, here it comes, was famously depicted as a hunchback in both historical record and literature such as Shakespeare's play Richard III. And a lot of people, including the Richard III Society, believed that this had been actually just propaganda made up by the victor of the war, Henry Tudor, to destroy the legacy of Richard III and to justify uh, his claim to the throne and his spot as the righteous, you know, ruler of England, because of course, why would you want some creepy hunchback guy when you can have studly Henry Tudor running England? So there were a lot of 16th century writers and artists that really went out of their way to depict Richard as this evil hunchback tyrant. And uh, a lot of people later on thought that it was simply just revenge by the Tudors and uh, not actually historically based. But the hunchback rumor was really pervasive. 106 years after his death, Sir Thomas More's depiction of him in the history of King Richard III was totally immortalized uh, when Shakespeare used it as the basis for his depiction of Richard in Richard III. Of course, 
defenders of Richard say that both of those authors were loyal to the Tudor kings of their time, and so they were just being biased, you know. Don't you know? Yeah, I sound so Midwestern. Uh, anyway, so in this case, it seems that perhaps uh, it wasn't just a bunch of bitter English authors. It, it might have been actually a rumor that was based in part on truth. Uh, if this is the skeleton of Richard III, then that does appear to be the case because this guy was, in fact, a hunchback. So, yeah, the other stuff that comes along with Richard's persona as the evil child killer and all that may or may not be true. Not too sure about that. There is a rumor that he actually had his uh, brother's children, who were the actual successors to the throne before him, sent to the tower and killed uh, so that he could take control. Nobody really knows what happened to them. They disappeared, never heard from again. So it's possible Richard was a very bad boy, but uh, whether he was or not, he actually was, in fact, a hunchback. So take that, propaganda people, with your propaganda and your Thomas More and Shakespeare stuff that you thought you were just being really mean about writing, but was actually really true. So, so there, Shakespeare, deal with that. Oh, I don't really want to make it sound like I'm being mean to Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare. I mean, like, I'm a theater major, you know? I spend a long time loving Shakespeare. And my love never dies, okay? My love is pure. My love is never-ending for that man, that complete stranger mystery man that nobody knows anything about that wrote all those really awesome plays. I love you, Shakespeare. Anyway, now that my love for Shakespeare has been outed, let's get back to business. So, you ask, is the fact that some guy was buried in the same friary who happened to die violently and have really bad scoliosis evidence enough that the skeleton is Richard? Well, it would be quite a coincidence, but it's not really foolproof evidence. No. No. Lester archaeologists thought the same thing, so they extracted samples of DNA and bone from the ribs for independent radiocarbon dating at two different facilities. So, as far as the dates are concerned, each concluded with 69% confidence that the sample dated to between 1475 and 1530 AD. And Richard's death occurred in 1485, so this did kind of support their theory, I guess. Uh, furthermore, mass spectronomy of the samples revealed a diet high in protein and seafood, uh, which would have been consistent with the diet of an English king during the 15th century, and a 30-something-year-old podcaster in the years following her experimentation with vegetarianism. So anyway, along with radiocarbon dating, which, if you don't know, uh, requires only organic material containing uh, carbon-14, DNA was also extracted from one of the skeleton's teeth for analysis of its mitochondrial DNA, or mtDNA. And that's a small portion of DNA that's transferred only from mother to her children, which remains unchanged, basically, except for the occasional mutation or two. And if a line of descent through women containing the same mitochondrial DNA as Richard's III existed, then their DNA could be compared with the skeleton. And if they could be shown to be identical or nearly identical, then a real identification of ancestry between these could be made. Luckily, <laughs> Richard did share the mitochondrial DNA given to him by his mother, Cecily Neville, 
with his siblings because the mother passes it to all of her siblings. And that DNA, that mitochondrial DNA, is passed from her daughters to their children as well. So Cecily had a daughter, Richard's sister, Anne of York. And the line actually comes from her. It's called a matriline. And it's a line of secession from her to a living male descendant, which could be established by the comparison of his DNA to Richard III's because he shared the same mtDNA with Anne of York. So this man is a Canadian named, he's a Canadian, a Canuck, a named Michael Ibsen. And he actually shares nearly identical mitochondrial DNA to Richard III, which I'm sure came as quite a surprise to Mr. Ibsen of Canada. There's actually another individual who was also tested and also had uh, matching matrilineal DNA from Richard's family, but they wished to remain anonymous. Apparently, the news of finding out that they were related to one of the most famous and most infamous kings of England was something they didn't really want made public. Anyway, this DNA evidence that links these modern people to the family of Richard III is probably the strongest evidence proving that the body is actually him because he shares that DNA as well. And this isn't actually the only DNA evidence that exists. There was some Y chromosome testing done as well, and there isn't a lot of information provided about Lester by this, but apparently several descendants of an all-male line of descent from Henry Somerset, the Duke of Beaufort, who was a 15th generation descendant of Edward III, who was a fourth generation removed from Richard in an all-male line, was discovered. And the Y chromosome, if you don't know, is passed from males to their sons, and it's actually it's pretty easy to trace the Y chromosome through the males of a line. This instance even though it seems like sort of a long, convoluted relationship between Edward III and Richard III and Henry Somerset and all these people, they're related by the male line, and so they share their Y chromosomes um, almost identically. And so apparently there is some Y chromosome evidence from a descendant of these people who also shares the Y chromosome of Richard III that links him, the skeleton at least, to, to, this, to this family. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. I got all of my information, in case you were wondering, about all of the excavations and the analysis from the University of Leicester's website. If you're interested, I would definitely check it out. It's le.ac.uk forward slash Richard III forward slash. And so definitely check it out. They've got a lot of really good information, and I'm sure they're going to keep updating it as it comes. Okay, so I guess here's the part of the show where I go off on some crazy historical tangent because when I'm researching this stuff, I get so into it and I love history, so I get into the history of it all and I find out so many cool things that I feel like it's like negligible, you know, bad stuff to, to keep them from you and I want you to know it too. So for your listening pleasure, here is a quick history of Plantagenet England. So let's see, Richard III was the last of the Plantagenet kings. A line of succession which began with Geoffrey Plantagenet, or Plantagenet if you're French, who wisely married the daughter of Henry I, who was the son of William the Conqueror, who ascended the throne in 1100 AD, and who I, through some genius genealogical research, have proven to be related to. That's right. So let's see, in a ballsy move. 
Henry stipulated that he should be succeeded by his daughter, Matilda. But war broke out, and in an effort to unite the English and Norman realms, he decided to marry Matilda to the son of the Count of Anjou of France, and later King of Jerusalem, Folk IV. He was uh, a crusader who became a Templar, and he eventually married the daughter of King Baldwin II of Jerusalem after the death of his lovely wife, Ermengarde. So, Folk's son, Geoffrey, and Henry's daughter, Matilda, had a son. They named him Henry II, and he actually began the Plantagenet dynasty with his marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine, who brought with her the Angevin Empire, one of those really special empires, you know? And then they went on to have a bunch of sons who were kind of all a little bit cray-cray in the head. Their sons include the famous crusader king, Richard the Lionheart, Geoffrey the Wimpy, who succeeded in winding his way into the dukedom of Brittany, and King John, the funny king of England. <laughs> you might also know this famous thumb-sucking villain from Robin Hood legend and Disney movie alike. And this delightful family is actually the subject of one of my favorite plays, The Lion in Winter by James Goldman. If you haven't seen this play or read it, please go do it because it is the bomb, all right? It is bad ass. I mean, bad butt. So, yeah, I definitely recommend renting the version with Katherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine because she kills it, okay, peeps? She kills it. Anyway, I'm getting off the soapbox on The Lion in Winter, but it is awesome. Anyway, back to the Plantagenets. Yeah, they're... Uh, so, okay. What happened during Plantagenet rule was the escalation of hostilities in England and over Europe. They were actually all heavily involved in the Crusades, and the, they were catalysts in the Barons' War, the Hundred Years' War, and the War of the Roses. I also have a sneaking suspicion they were probably behind the Black Death. Uh, the conflict that Richard III himself was involved in at the time of his death stemmed from the rivalry between two families, the House of York and the House of Lancaster. They were both descended from Plantagenet King Edward III, and they both claimed the throne of England. Now, the War of the Roses actually gets its name from the emblems of each of those houses, a red rose and a white rose. And... It was basically the escalation of these hostilities that happened between 1455 and 1485. Richard was a Yorkish king. And by the way, Yorkish is my new favorite word. Priory, you have been dethroned. I'm going to keep saying Yorkish as many times as possible. Richard, a Yorkish king, <laughs> was defeated in battle uh, by Henry Tudor, uh, who was of the Lancaster family. So he was not Yorkish. He was Lancasterian. <laughs> so, yeah. After battle, he won. He became Henry VII. And he actually married the daughter of Richard's brother, Edward V, which pretty much united the two houses and made everything wonderful. It began a 117-year rule of the Tudors, the Tudor family, a very famous Tudor family, in England. And uh, this was actually when the, Lancaster the Lancasters didn't adopt the Red Rose emblem until then. But the War of the Roses was, like, retroactively named, so. Anyway, uh, the during the time of the Tudors, when they started ruling, they actually combined the White Rose of York and the Red Rose of Lancaster to symbolize the union of the houses in what's known as the Tudor Rose. And, uh, like I said, the War of the Roses was actually a name that was created by Sir Walter Scott 
after a scene from, it was actually inspired by Shakespeare's Henry VI, and it's now known as an adaptation of Shakespeare's history plays as well, um, Henry VI, parts 1, 2, 3, and Richard III. And the original Royal Shakespeare Company's production starred none other, may I add, than everyone's favorite hobbit, Ian Holm, Bilbo Baggins, as Richard III. Okay, I'm just gonna let you, I'm just gonna put it out here. Picture it right now. Bilbo Baggins playing Richard III. Awesome, I know. So, I'm sure you really want to discuss the relationship of hobbits to the kings of England, but I'm going to end this discussion. <laughs> Sorry, maybe if you're next time. And I think what better way than to end with a quote from Shakespeare's Richard III, a play which I myself studied in college. I did a great monologue from it once as Queen Anne, but the speech of Richard at the beginning of the play um, is probably more familiar to you. And uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of Shakespeare for your afternoon. So here you have the infamous opening of Richard III performed for you by myself. Yours truly, in my best Shakespearean voice. <clears throat> now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front. He... Okay, I'm done. Uh, he sounds happy at the start. I have to explain it. Um, his brother, King Edward, has been victorious in battle, and the fog of war seems to be lifting from his lands. But don't be mistaken, Shakespeare's Richard is miserable, conniving, and unstoppable. He later proclaims, I am determined to prove a villain, and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Villain, you may have been proven in prose, sir. But perhaps now that we know more of your story, history might be a bit more forgiving. And that's all for Richard III week. Anyway, uh, I just have one more thing uh, to do today. I, I'm trying to keep this a little bit shorter, so I'm going to skip right to Shorty News. I think Shorty News needs a jingle, don't you? Let's see, what sounds good? Shorty News, Shorty News, Shorty News. Hmm, it's got to be quick. I don't know. Shorty News. There you go. Shorty news. I'm going to sing it again. Shorty news with feeling. Anyway, uh, we're moving on to uh, shorty news. Today I found this interesting story online. I think I found it at archaeologica.org. But it's actually uh, a story originally by Live Science, um, Stephanie Pappas, I believe. And the title caught my attention. Okay. It's called Grotesque Mummy Head Reveals Advanced Medieval Science. And I sort of noticed this week, maybe I tend to have a thing with mummies when I'm looking through for new stories. I don't know, but I guess I really like mummies for some reason. I mean, I do love the movie The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. Not really the third one, but anyway, I like Brendan Fraser, so I guess I'm into mummies. And so this is how this story goes. Uh, let's see, it's about the study of the human body, really. And it starts off with an exclamation that the study of the human body went through a revolution in the second century AD um, because a Greco-Roman doctor named Galen began using his practice of treating gladiators' wounds to focus on the internal structure of man, which hadn't really been done too much before. And 
pretty much from this period through to the Renaissance, um, it's pretty much believed that cultural stigmas against human dissection kept med medicinal study from advancing its knowledge on our anatomy. And so there's some new pictures released um, of what we're pretty much calling the oldest known preserved human dissection <laughs> that we have. And it's in the form of a very well-preserved mummy. And it's actually just a man's head, neck, and shoulders, the top of his shoulders. And unfortunately, the top of this fellow's skull has been sawed off, <laughs> revealing his brain. And all of these remains were preserved through the addition of a mer mercury and beeswax cocktail to his veins, which sounds delightful, doesn't it? Now, no identity is known on the man, but radiocarbon dates place his remains between 1200 and 1280 AD. And this relation, relation, revelation, rather, this revelation changes some of our assumptions about the later Dark Ages. And research on this mummy is being done by Philippe Charlier and colleagues from the University Hospital R. Poincaré in France. And he says pretty much the expertise with which this dissection was performed really points toward a more developed anatomical knowledge and more practiced science than was previously known to exist. And historian James Hannum claims that there was a lot more advancement through the Dark and Middle Ages than we've been led to believe as far as science and um, medicine were concerned. Uh, There's actually a lot of propaganda and anti-Catholic rhetoric from the Protestant Church later on in the Renaissance, which pretty much um, was trying to cast a pall over the era of Catholic rule, and part of this was trying to erase the notion of advancements in the arts and sciences between the Roman Empire and the Renaissance. So this crazy campaign included rumors uh, that insisted that the medieval Christian church had banned autopsies and human dissection, even though the church had actually at times been sanctioning the internal study of individuals who maybe might have been considered for canonization. <laughs> In fact, these holy autopsies, as they were called, included some awesome scientific discoveries, like the 1308 discovery of a tiny crucifix in the heart of an abbess named Chiara de Montefacto, and three gallstones in her gallbladder, which obviously represented the Holy Trinity and not the hardening of chemicals and bile into tiny stones meant to torture the owner of said gallbladder. For her suffering, the abbess was made a saint in 1881. I only find it odd that a lady with gallstones and a tiny crucifix in her heart didn't pass the saint test for 573 years. If anyone deserves sainthood, it's obviously this lady. So yeah, fellow mummy lovers, like myself, might enjoy a little science of the grotesque in today's shorty news. And by the way, that's mummy lovers, not mother lovers. That's a completely different thing. So I'm going to post some of those pictures of this fascinating and grotesque mummy on my website. And I just wonder, like, did he devote his body to science? Is that why he got chosen to have his skull sawed off? I don't know. I guess they're thinking he is probably um, like a mental patient or a corpse that, well, you know, of a homeless person that was never claimed. Anyway, I guess there are worse things than becoming a mummy known worldwide for having your head sawed off. Huh. I'll have the pictures up on my website, www.jennifermcniven.com, and on the Facebook page for the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. Um, so make sure you like it, make sure you check them out, and... Uh, Let's just give this gentleman a silent round of applause, all right? Thank you for your sacrifice, Mr. Headless Mummy Man. 
And that's going to do it for this week, guys. Uh, sorry I took up so much time talking about Richard III, but what can I say? Hunchbacks get me hot. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> I mean excited. I, I, okay. Anyway, uh, I've got a couple other stories I'm pushing in next week. Uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. We're talking about the discovery of a new Y chromosome chain that uh, seems to have separated and pushes back the development of that particular chain about 400,000 years, so that's pretty exciting. And there's also going to be a story about um, the discovery of some new uh, apocryphal Christian texts that claim Jesus happened to be a shapeshifter. So I think that's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, so tune in next time to the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. Send me your questions, comments uh, to uh, www.jennifermcniven.com. You can comment um, on the blog post for this episode, or you can send me an email at guide to getting dirty at gmail.com. Thank you ever so much. I think it's about time for my glass of scotch. I think I deserve it. I mean, I have been spouting out some pretty awesome knowledge. So we'll catch you guys on the flippity flip. Yeah, 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 I know. For those of you who noticed, yeah, I stole it from the office, okay? I'm sorry, but like I said, my love is undying, and I love Michael Scott. The end. McNiven out!